to The Sunny Side, the podcast that makes solar energy relatable, accessible, and attainable. Join us as we journey behind the scenes with women taking amazing strides in all parts of the solar industry. I'm your host, Sharon Lee, and thank you for joining us today. Welcome back to the sunny side. I'm your host, Sharon Lee, and we are going to dive right into today's episode. But first, let me take you into Sharon's corner, talk a little bit about what I've been up to since last episode. So Velo Solar did a sales retreat up in beautiful Blue Ridge, Georgia, and we played golf. Not well, but we played golf and had fantastic food, talked a little bit of planning. And from there, I went to the total opposite extreme to the coast of Savannah and had a meeting with clients and some fantastic networking with the Chamber of Commerce. We went to a place called Starland Yard, which I'd never heard of before, but it was very, very Savannah, very eclectic food trucks and music and very well attended. It was a lot of fun just to go home and put on my boy mom hat. And I cannot believe my older son just turned 15. That's hard. I can't even believe I said that so easily. That's a hard one to take. But I took a group of his friends to Top Golf. So that was a big surprise for him. It was fun. And then the rest of the weekend we spent at the baseball field with my younger son tournaments. So I am sunburned and tired, and but it was a great weekend. But now I'm back on the Beltline in Atlanta and ready to talk to today's guest. So please help me to welcome Abigail Ross Hopper. She's the president and CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association, otherwise known as SIA. So welcome to the sunny side. Hey, Abby. Hi, Sharon. How are you? I am great. I'm great. We're so thrilled that you're with us today. So Let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, what brought you to the solar industry. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for inviting me to be here. It's really an honor to spend time with you. How did I end up here? That is such a fine question. (laughs) And to all those people who sort of sketched their life out and their life plan out early on in their life and followed it to a T, God bless you. I sketched my life plan out and then it went dramatically off the rails quickly just because my interests changed and my life changed and my situation changed. And I had three children and what seemed like a really great idea when I was 20 something and had no children did not seem like a great idea when I was 30 something and had three little kids. So I sort of fell into this energy world totally by accident. I was a lawyer in private practice. I was a divorce lawyer, actually, before I joined the forces of the energy world. And so I share that because I think it's really important for people to know that there's no one way to get here, right? There's no one career path, especially for young women who are kind of struggling with how do I be a mom and how do I be a professional? There's no one way. And there's also sort of no timeline, right? Like what makes sense when your kids are two is different than when they're 12 is different when they're 22, It took me a long time to figure that out. I'm still figuring it out. So yeah, most recently I got here because I was ending my role with the federal government. I worked as a political under President Obama. And as that job was coming to a close, as his term was ending, actually the CEO job opened up and I thought, well, that sounds like an interesting opportunity. I'm not, I was not super well versed in solar. It was not an area I'd spent a lot of time working in or thinking about, but the ability to be in this industry and it was clear which direction it was going 
and to lead a team of committed professionals sounded really appealing to me. And here I am. Well, you have taken this industry by storm. We are lucky to have you, that's for sure. And I wanted to share more to the story. I found this bio of yours. It sounds like I'm stalking you. (laughs) I found this bio of yours online. I absolutely loved it. It said, she's the very proud mom of three children and loves to read, ride her Peloton, do hot yoga, and lie on the beach in her not-so-free time. How Pretty much all you need to know about me. You will find me in one of those places. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, just to say, I can't imagine a better one of my first guests being you because it's just such a perfect fit since our audience isn't only women, but our goal is to lift women up using this platform in the solar industry, which is most definitely male dominated and spotlight their unique impacts and the mountains that they or we are moving every day. And so when it comes to that mission, I feel like you have a gift. So tell me what inspired you to begin bringing women of our industry together? Yeah, I appreciate that question. So I grew up here in Washington, D.C., And I actually went to an all-girls school from when I was in seventh grade through 12th grade. It was a small school. There were about 55 young women in my graduating class. Actually, I have the joy of having my two daughters go to the same all-girls school. It's been pretty cool. One's graduated last year and one's graduating this year. So I learned from a really young age both the power of women being together in their own space and the having people in my life, my parents and my teachers and my coaches say, you can do whatever you want. You can be the editor in chief of the newspaper or the captain of the team or the president of this club or whatever. And they're all obviously leadership roles. (laughs) And so I sort of like went through life just assuming that that would be the case, right? I'll be whatever I want and I'm going to hang out with other women while I do it. I went to a very male, I went to Dartmouth and, you know, Dartmouth was not that far out of like into its co-educational existence, had a couple hundred years of all men and then maybe 20 years of women in the school. It was a fabulous experience, but it again, reiterated to me how important it was to create communities of women. And so when I got to this role in particular, I was really kind of surprised actually the first time I went to a solar event, it was probably one that we co-own. And it took my breath away a little bit, sort of how male and how white the room was. And I thought, oh, we need to create some spaces where women and people of color can just take a breath, right? Like take a breath. And as you said, you said it eloquently, learn from each other, lift each other up, remind each other of the value of our contributions and really identify what our unique contributions are. And so it started out very informally. I remember at the first SPI No, I don't think it was the first one because that's a blur. I was only in the job a couple months. But the second SVI, I just sort of on the fly invited women over to my suite. Like I got a big suite and it started kind of that, like, hey, what are you doing later? Why don't you guys come over? And why don't you come over? And why don't you come over? And at the end, we had like 75 people in my suite, 75 women in my suite. And then I got a little more organized, like, okay, let's do these events. And for me, I just got back from Texas. We did RE Plus Texas, and I had a women's event in my suite. And I don't know how many people were there, maybe 40 women. And those are always one of my favorite parts of any event I go to, because they're women from all different parts of their career, 
right? There was a woman there who was just out of college and there were women CEOs and there were women founders and technical experts and finance experts. And so if you take away the fact that we're all women, it's an incredibly accomplished group of professionals. And then you add back in the fact that we also have this other shared lived experience. It's really cool. And so I partly did it for myself, right? To create spaces that I felt really comfortable and supported before I stepped back out onto the stage. You did it right. We were together in Atlanta for what used to be the solar and storage Southeast. And yeah, after a long day of networking and sessions and all that, just to get together. And of course, the organizing with the wine and sushi was top notch. (laughs) And I think the other thing was, I mean, everybody felt very comfortable with one another. We took our shoes off. We just talked, you know, just roundtable style. And it was really fantastic. But you're exactly right. There were women from all walks of their career and everyone felt comfortable to share. So kudos. That was very, very well done. So I was going to ask you how being a woman impacted your career. So maybe we can segue there. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Maybe I'm breaking the rules, but you sent these over in advance. So I had a chance to really think about that a little bit, whether being a woman, how it impacted my career. So before I was in the energy industry, I was a lawyer in private practice, right, for a decade. And then I was deputy general counsel for the Public Service Commission. I worked for the governor of Maryland and then the president. I mean, I guess it impacts everything, right? Because that's my lived experience is that I am a woman. So I don't know how else to be in the world. But I definitely, you know, I've experienced lots of the same kinds of things that unfortunately a lot of other women have had to experience, right? About both this sort of being interrupted and spoken over and having my ideas not assigned to me. But also, you know, touched and groped and all those other really unpleasant things, being assumed that I was the person there to get the coffee rather than the executive they were there to meet with. It's amazing when I think about it. And those things still happen, right? Like almost every time I'm on the road, choose your own adventure of those things I just said happens. It happens in a different way now because I'm at a different position of power than I was when I was earlier in my career. But it still happens. And that's what makes me realize like we need to still have places that feel more safe because it does. Like, don't get me wrong, I love being a woman. And I love the camaraderie I feel with a lot of my colleagues who are women. I love talking to younger women or women earlier in their careers who are really trying to figure out how to be a mom and how to be a professional and how we sort of shift back and forth in those roles over the course of the day, much less their career, but the day itself. I mean, I was a little behind schedule this morning because my teenager wouldn't get out of bed and I have to take him to school. So like, it's still a daily occurrence for me. And in that way, I feel like I've really formed some different kinds of relationships, right? Like with some of my colleagues, and I really appreciate those opportunities. Right. And I think that the collaborative nature of women helps keep our sanity through all of that and helps you deal with the guilt of all of that. And I think, yes, just keeps us keeping one foot going in front of the other. So it's interesting, the the solar industry, I feel like it has advanced so much, but it's a very young industry overall. So I was thinking about, you know, how has the impact of women evolved over the last five years, which is a big portion of the entire industry. But do you want to speak to any changes you have seen? 
Yeah, sure. So I got here, and by here, I mean both the solar industry and SIA a little over five years ago. So I can tell you that in the last five years, we have welcomed more women into the solar industry. We do a study. We don't do it every year. We do a job study every year. And then we also do a diversity study every couple of years. Both are happening this year. But when we look over the job study, we do basic demographic information, including you know how many women and how many people of color are in our industry. So since 2015, there's been a 39% increase of women in the solar industry. We now represent about 30% of the workforce. So that's better. It was, I think, 20-something when I got here. So as my old boss, the governor, used to say, it's a graph moving in the right direction. I don't think it's moving quite quickly enough for my taste. And certainly our representation around people of color is not nearly as high as 30%. And then if you start looking at where in the industry are women and people of color, are they business owners? Are they CEOs? Are they project managers? Are they installation crews? That's what the diversity study that we're conducting this year is going to give us a lot more information, as well as pay equity and understanding kind of how the solar industry is doing with regard to pay equity. So there's more data to be mined and more lessons to be learned. I think for most companies, my experience has been that there's an intentionality around addressing these issues. Doesn't always mean they know exactly what to do or doing it perfectly, but there is a desire to change. And that's the first step for sure. Yep. And from that standpoint, where do you see the best opportunities for young women to start their careers? I'm a big believer in find what you love and go for it. And your first job isn't going to be your last job, right? You and I can both, I'm sure, Sharon, have had more than one role. And so, you know, I have a daughter who's in college and one daughter who's about to be in college. And they think a lot about what that first job is going to be like, which is so important. But I try to remind them that it's a step into the industry, whatever industry they're choosing. And neither one of them has expressed any interest in going into solar or energy. But anyway, it's just a like step into the chosen field. And so I would say for your women earlier in their career who are looking to either get into the industry or sort of navigate their way upwards, find something that interests you. Don't hold out for the perfect job. Get in the door because I really do believe that once you prove yourself, so many other doors will open and find those people that are invested in your success. It can be any male, female, non-binary, does not matter, right? People that are invested in your success. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have to have a formal title of mentor or boss or some kind of construct. Like I just don't have time in my life to participate in things that have that level of formal construct. But I do feel like I am invested in the success of a lot of different people. And sometimes that might mean we have a conversation every couple months where they're like, hey, I have this thing, this question or this situation. What do you think? And I'll tell them what I think. Or it might mean that we, you know, when I'm in their city, like when I'm in Atlanta, I see you, right? Like it doesn't mean we have to, when we're not in Atlanta, we don't have to talk every Thursday at 1215. Because neither one of us have lives that would allow for that. But we're invested in each other's success. And that, to me, has been like a huge freedom to know that I don't have to follow some rigid mentoring program so that I then have this outcome. It's like, oh, I'm going to utilize the relationships I have and I have created. And that totally works for me. I don't know if it works for everybody, but it works for me. Well, I think it is really important to think about that and know who those people are in your life and be meaningful about those things. When that's what you said, when you're in Atlanta, you do this, or if you, you know, you have, you find ways to make those as enriching as you possibly can. And that's intentional from 
your part. And then so you're doing your part and, you know, you hope that the other side will do it as well. So I think that's fantastic. But let's shift gears a little bit. Talking about the solar energy in general, state of the world, and how it relates to cybersecurity. So first, how did your recent cybersecurity conference go? It was great. So last week in Texas, we had Secure Renewables 22. It was the first of its kind event that we put on all around ensuring that solar is the most secure technology on the grid. That is our goal. And we had FERC Commissioner Willie Phillips attended in person. Yay, it was all in person. We had the Deputy Director of the White House Cybersecurity Office. We had a great collaboration with Idaho National Labs. And it was funny, I will say, like, so I was on the stage last Tuesday morning with someone from the lab and then the deputy director of the White House office and Commissioner Phillips was sitting in the audience and I looked up and I realized there was security, like, you know, the guys in the dark suits with, you know, the earphones in. And I thought, oh, this is a cyber conference, right? (laughs) We're talking about state policy in Georgia. We don't have security in the corners. It was funny. It was a great event. And the reason it was a great event was because it really did bring together government, industry, and the labs to identify what the challenges are and how we're going to get there. We were really focused. Like one of the specific outcomes was ensuring that the industry, A, understands that cyber is in our best interest, right? It is not merely kind of a band-aid we need to slap on because some regulation told us we had to. It is a way of thinking and ensuring that business continuity, right? And that we can continue to grow our industry. If we have a huge cyber event in the solar industry that contributes to the grid going down, all of us as entrepreneurs are going to be really in trouble, right? Because we will really struggle with adoption going forward. And so it's in our business interest to address this early on. And it's so much cheaper, right? It's like health. It's like so many things. An ounce of prevention will save a lot in the future. And I think it was really effective in that way. The other thing I noticed, and I mentioned this from the stage when I was up front, the room was so much more diverse. You know, we drew from a different population. Usually it's a lot of policy people, salespeople that come to our events. This was a bunch of cyber professionals, not a world I usually hang out in (laughs) because I don't understand what they're talking about mostly. It was a lot more women and a lot more diverse audience than I normally see at our shows. And it made me think like, oh, you know, we talk a lot about cyber, you know, across industries. It's clearly a growing sector and it's reflected in that workforce. It's cool. That is very cool. Something I would never have even thought about. That was a nice revelation. Well, I think that you kind of answered my next question about kind of taking a step back and helping our listeners to make the connection between solar energy and the strength of cybersecurity. So I think that you did that from the standpoint of the impact to solar, right? But how can solar help the security in the U.S. going in the opposite direction? Does that make sense? Did I yeah, ask you that? Right? Total sense, right? How do we keep our technology secure, but also what do we add to the security of the nation's energy mix? Right. And I'm not saying anything everyone else hasn't said, but certainly the invasion of Ukraine has put such a fine point on the role that energy and access to energy plays in our foreign policy. And I know we're going to talk about manufacturing in a moment, and we should Mm -hmm. talk about that. But if we think even just about fuel source, right, like 
we don't have to import the sun from anywhere else. We don't have to hope that a government is friendly with ours to utilize that resource. I mean, there's lots of hardware that we need to talk about and software, but fuel source, like we've got that one covered. Right. Okay. Check that one off the list. (laughs) But that's a good segue directly into manufacturing, specifically U.S. manufacturing and supply chain disruptions and jobs, how that is impacting everything. But we need long-term policies and changes to those policies to get there, right? So what would you recommend? What do you see as short-term things to get us going in the right direction? And what do you see as a good long-term strategy? So, I mean, when I took this job a couple of years ago, I did not fully appreciate how much of my life would be involved trade and tariff discussions, right? I really had no idea. When I first got here, I launched on this 100-day tour where I traveled all around the country and I met with a bunch of our members on all different places and talked about what they needed and, you know, what was working for them and what wasn't working for them and how could we be of more help and what do they need from the U.S. government and the state government. I had all these great conversations. And then on the literally the hundredth day, I had this job because it was going to be like the hundredth days I would synthesize all this and communicate it back out. That's when the first 201 petition was filed on the hundredth day. And I thought, oh God, And it totally hijacked, you know, most of everything for all of us. And that has been, it feels like a continuous cycle, obviously, that we're in again. But what it made me realize and made a lot of us realize was that all of these trade cases, they're symptoms of a larger problem and a larger question. And the larger question is just what you ask, like, how do we create a strong, vibrant, robust domestic manufacturing base in the US? Like, I don't know of anyone who's against that. How do we do that? I am of the very strong opinion that tariffs are not the way to do that. And I think the evidence has borne that out. We've had tariffs in place for the last 12 years, and we still are asking ourselves the same question, how do we build this? And so we started here at SIA a couple of years ago. We created a manufacturing division in our organization. We have a number of manufacturers who are really active and helping us answer that question of what do they need, right? It's not like, hey, political scientists or hey, you know, government lobbyists, what do you think we need? It's, hey, you're a manufacturing company, you are thinking about where to invest capital, and under what terms you will invest your capital. And what do you need? Right? What kind of business and political climate do you need? And so from that, we worked really close, actually, with the senator from your great state, Senator Ossoff, to help draft the SEMA, the Solar Energy and Equipment Manufacturing Act, I think. But it is a number of different pieces to the puzzle. Because like any challenging puzzle, there's, you know, you got to put all the pieces together, right? If it was easy, we would have done it a while ago. But one of those pieces is to send a clear signal to the manufacturers and say, hey, we're going to support you. We're going to do that both through investment tax credit of your initial investment in building your factory, but also in production tax credit so that there's an incentive for each thing you build. But we also need to send a really clear signal of the tax credit, that long-term extensions of of the solar investment tax credit, so that manufacturers know there'll be a market, right? There'll continue to be a market for what they're producing. And those two things in concert, we think will send the right market signals. You know, we certainly don't want to federalize the manufacturing in the United States, but we do want to say, hey, this is a priority for all the reasons we all know, including cyber. And so we are going to invest our time, money, and resources in making sure it happens. 
So that leads into the extension of the ITC is just a, is a perfect, and that goes beyond manufacturing, but it goes hand in hand with exactly what you're trying to do in looking at long-term stability issues for the industry. Right. So before I told you I was a divorce lawyer, which I was for five years before I got here, immediately before I got to energy, I was going to say, you know, if you want to meet after work sometime, I can give you advice on your divorce, not you, Sharon, but like one's divorce. It's amazing how handy that information is. People need it a lot, unfortunately, (laughs) myself included. But anyway, before that, I was a corporate securities lawyer, right? And so I represented big companies and large organizations that were either investing capital in businesses or were businesses like going public or whatever. And so I bring that lens to the work I do here. And the message on the Hill and in state capitals is like solar companies are just like any other rational economic actor, right? There's nothing fundamentally altruistic about them, right? They're not necessarily motivated by just making everyone feel good about their energy use. Like you got to make payroll, you got to pay taxes, you got to turn a profit for either your investors or your shareholders. Like we're all capitalists here. And so what I need and what my companies need from the government is stability, they need stability and they need predictability and they need to understand what the rules of the road are so they can talk to their investors, talk to their shareholders about how to allocate capital, right? Like we could be selling widgets. We could be selling pencils. We could be selling grapes. I don't know why I picked that one. (laughs) They all want the same thing. They want stability. They want known timelines, right? It's the same things. And so the long-term extensions of the investment tax credit, it's not because we think we're good and we're, you know, we're better than other technologies, although we certainly bring attributes that other technologies and fuel sources can't bring. But it's because we're rational economic actors and we need certainty in order to deploy capital. Exactly. So if you give me a one-year extension, a two-year extension, that's better than nothing. But I can't make a long-term business plan and we can't plan to quadruple our workforce, which is what we need to do on a two-year extension. No one's going to do that. And no one should do that. That's poor business strategy. Right. So we're just good, methodical, good, long-term business decisions. But let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about some statistics, because I do think that when it comes to solar, I think that we can talk all day long about things that we need to do and policy changes that we need and that. But there's a lot of success stories about where solar is today versus years ago. Do you want to share some successes and what people might not know about where solar is today? Yeah, there is so much good news in the solar industry. I just had a chat with my team this morning because we were talking on a Monday. Sometimes Mondays are challenging. And it was one of those IT Mondays too, when the laptop wouldn't turn on and the emails weren't downloading to the phone and who, where are we supposed to be anyway? I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I'm here. I found that all got worked out. If this had been a nine o'clock meeting, we would have been in trouble. We just reflected this morning in our executive team meeting at SIA like the reason we are being challenged on the trade front, the reason that other interests are coming after us, the reason that sometimes it feels like we're constantly under siege is because we're succeeding, right? Like right. people don't put targets on the back of losers, right? Like they just don't waste their time. And so we are winning, right? We are a real market risk. If you look at any projection, Solar is going to be like the predominant, if not one of the predominant fuel sources in the next 10 years. And so those entities that we threaten and fill in the blank on the entity are coming after us. It's, I just said, like we live in a capitalistic world. It's competition and we love competition and that's totally fine. 
It's totally fine. So I'll start there, right? We're winning, even though in the day-to-day, maybe it doesn't feel like it sometimes. But if we think about, well, how do we know that? We talked about the projections and it's all clear, right? If you look at any projection from any organization, But if you think about what's happened in the last few years, we look at sources of new electricity generation and solar is either number one or number two source of new electricity generation, like year over year over the last five or six years. If we look at the pace of our growth, we've continued to grow year over year at just incredible rates, even in a year that was challenging, even a year where we all had COVID, even in a year where we couldn't get fill in the blank, it was challenging. The trade petition, I think that threatens it in the near term, and that's a serious risk. But it's pretty amazing. I think a lot about like what the world will look like. I have a 14-year-old son, and when my 14-year-old son and your 15-year-old son are our age, I think it will be normalized. You know, I live in D.C., and so sometimes I drive on 95, and there are those humongous transition corridors, right? And we don't even see them. Right. right. We don't even notice them because they've been there and that's just how it is. I don't notice solar panels anymore. Some people do, but I don't. I mean, I notice wind farms because we don't have a lot of them here on the East Coast. But I think all of that is going to get normalized. And so I'm really clear about where we're headed. And I think the market is very clear about where we're headed. I think sort of what's still up for grabs is the pace of that transition. Some of us think it should happen more quickly, others more slowly. I think the planet needs it to go a lot faster. So that's what I'm super focused on. I think that's fantastic. And you can tell it. I mean, you're a force to be reckoned with. So I think that's just fantastic. So let's talk about specifically SIA and Mm -hmm. some of the things that it is doing on an ongoing basis, policy-wise, strategy, the front and center, things that they're doing to move things forward. Yeah. So SIA is such a cool organization. There's about 55 employees, maybe, which some people think is a lot. Some people think is a little. I think it's just right. No, I don't know. (laughs) We're having a hiring spree. We're hiring a lot of people. So if anyone needs a job, hit me up. But we do the sort of traditional trade association work, which is, you know, the way I describe it to people who aren't familiar with trade associations is that we really are the point of the spear, right? Like we are the ones who are out there pushing so that you don't have to, right? You might not want Velo Solar's name associated sort of one-on-one with a particular position or a particular advocacy stance, but it needs to be said. And that's my job, right? My job is to say it. And it could be on the Hill here in Washington. It could be in the White House. It could be at the Department of Energy. It could be at the state capitol in Atlanta. It could be at your public utility commission, right? I mean, we we do different venues. It could be at PJM, but we are the voice of the industry. So sort of this aggregated group of companies that speak with one voice and are more powerful than one company speaking by itself. Mm-hmm. So we do, we have a federal affairs team, we have a regulatory affairs team, we have a state affairs team. That's all pretty fun. We also have a research team, right? Because no matter what policymaker I go to speak to, they want to know, he or she or they want to know how it impacts their jurisdiction, whether it's their county or their state. And so our research team tells me there are X number of solar workers in Georgia, and there's X number of companies, and the five biggest markets are Y, and the places it's going to grow the most are XWZ. And just that data is so critical to our advocacy efforts. So we have a whole research team. Obviously, we have a comms team that tells the story. We have a membership services team that really makes sure our members know what's up. 
But some things we do that people aren't as familiar with, like we have a codes and standards team, right? So if you think about all of you out there in the world, building solar have to comply with building codes and construction codes and safety codes. And if they are being drafted by people who either not knowledgeable about solar or worse are hostile to solar, they're going to make your job so much more difficult and expensive. So we have technical experts who advocate in those venues and take positions. We have someone on our team that is helping us develop a nationwide program for PV recycling, right? Again, as we think about areas of risk for the industry, we can't handle and figure out the recycling issue. That's not going to be good. We're also thinking about obviously things like trade, but also sort of the security and the character of our supply chain. And so we have someone on our team that's working on helping us become a certified organization so we can promulgate standards so that all of our installers and all of our companies are living up to a certain standard that will help with government compliance requirements. And so that's part of what I love about being in this organization, like just as an organization, is that we are small enough and flexible enough to really respond to what the industry needs. We just brought on a new VP of equity and workforce development. So as we think about quadrupling the solar workforce, A, how are we going to do that? And who are we going to employ? And how do we make sure it's as equitable as it needs to be? And so now we have someone who's an expert in that and can help us and help our companies navigate pretty unexplored territory, right? So that's what SIA does. Oh, and we put on a lot of events. <laughs> I know, that's what you're more known for, but it's amazing what all's done behind the scenes. And, and right? that. that's fantastic. And this was a perfect opportunity to segue into a spotlight on the RE Plus Southeast that's coming to Atlanta. What is it, May yeah. 11th and 12th? That sounds right. So that sounds that. right. I will <laughs> be in your great city. So as you know, we were talking about this earlier, we've rebranded to RE Plus to really reflect the fact that almost everyone in this industry is taking a solutions-oriented approach and not necessarily a technology-oriented approach, right? Customers want clean, reliable, affordable energy. And we know that solar and storage are pillars of that, but not the only pillars. And so we want our shows to reflect that. So we're coming up for RE Plus Southeast, and I'm sure there will be a women's reception. (laughs) But yeah, it's one of our biggest shows. I mean, the Southeast is just such a booming market. It's a different market, obviously, than some other, like just in Texas, different than Texas. We're in the Northeast, very different than the Northeast. But that's why we do the regional shows is because those variations are important, right? It's not going to really help you if all we talk about are deregulated states in your great state of Georgia. Right. (laughs) Right. Well, and speaking of those events, so when we were in Atlanta last time, we were talking about, this is a random question, about what you were reading. And you were reading, for fun, a Leanne Moriarty book, and we both love her as an author. So I have to ask, what are you reading right now? For fun. Oh my gosh. So I always have one book on my phone, on Audible, that I listen to, like if I'm driving or on the airplane. I did on the airplane the other day. So I just downloaded a new mystery. It's a debut mystery because like when I'm listening, that's about all I can manage. Like I don't have the attention span for real literature. Blood Sugar by Sasha Rothschild. It's really good. So that's what I'm listening to. And what I'm reading, I just finished a book I was away last week. I was in Florida on spring break with my son and his best friend. 
and I finished a book about that one thing that I can't remember. And then I started reading another. I started reading a book I found at Goodwill. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Classic. I forget what it's called. But the thing I find so interesting about it is that the main character is really into plants and flowers and the meaning of flowers. And it's one of the ways she communicates with people is like, she'll give someone a rose because it means X or an orchid because it means Y. And I don't remember what it is. But that's what I love about reading is it lets my brain sort of go to places that I do not involve solar policy or energy policy or politics and just like have a nice little break. But I have quite a stack on the side of my bed as all the time. What are you reading right now? So I just finished. Have you ever read Kate Quinn? I love historical fiction. Oh, I love me too. So Kate, I mean, Rose Code is her latest. And so I just finished that. It's probably not her best, but it was still very good. And most of her writings are based on true story kinds of things. My favorite of hers was the Alice Network. And that was a real life. These were like women spies back in World War I and how they... You know, no one expected females to be doing something like that. But just the fact that it was based on a few true story, there was truly an Alice Network and it was really fantastic. It's not light though. (laughs) So it's not one of those beach reads, you know, but. Yeah. Yeah. No, I got bored with the beach reads. What was the author's name? Kate Quinn. All right. I'm adding it to my list. Yeah. She's fantastic. One of my favorite historical fiction books. Have you ever read? There's two. A Thousand White Women. 1,000 White Women? No. Highly recommend it. It's about a time when the country was just forming when, obviously this didn't take place, but when the U.S. government in a way to colonize basically the Native Americans gave them 1,000 white women to marry and have children with to kind of change their culture. It's really fascinating. Highly recommend it. And then I love, have you read The Red Tent? Yes. I just reread it recently. After. I, was I would need to reread it. It's been a long time since I read it. But. I reread it and it was so fabulous. I needed Diamante. I love anything she writes. Mm-hmm. Anything she writes. I'm trying to think if I have, I don't think I've read anything else that she has written, but she is, I mean, what a fantastic, I mean, I, I mean, again, I love taking something that is true to life and bringing yeah. it to life. So Yeah, she has a really great book about the founding of Harvard. And again, historical fiction. She has a great book about the, I think it's called The Plague, about the plague and sort of the community. And it feels relevant at the moment, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Too close to home. Not going to read that one now. Don't read it. Don't read it. Yeah. love reading. I do too. Well, I tell you what, it has been great talking to you today. And if people want to know more about SIA, your events, policy initiatives, things that you all are undertaking and that sort of thing, tell them where to find you. Yeah. And job openings. And job openings. Yes. It's really easy. SIA.org. S-E-I-A.org. That's where all of our stuff is, our job listings, our policy positions, our media alerts, all of our contact information. And I would encourage people, if you're RE Plus or any of our events, please, please, please reach out to me. I'd love to meet you. Sounds fantastic. Well, thanks again for being with us today and for sharing your thoughts. Sharon, thanks for doing this. You're really doing a service. And it was a pleasure talking with you. Fantastic. All right. We'll see you in Atlanta. See you in Atlanta. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Sunnyside Podcast. 
If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review. You can also email questions, suggestions, and compliments to Sharon at velosolar.com. The Sunny Side is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company and executive produced by Sharon Lee.